The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 18th, 2018, the Cheek Swab edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., Slate Studio. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. You are together somewhere else. New York somewhere, right? New York. Hello. Yeah, we're in New York. That's the CBS Studios. Uh, nice to uh, Nice to see you, except I don't see you. Nice to hear you. On this week's show, the outrage over the apparent murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi government and what will come of that outrage. Then Elizabeth Warren and the biggest DNA test since the OJ trial. Did she botch her moment? Then is Georgia's Republican candidate for governor purging Democratic voters from the voting rolls? And what does this episode in Georgia tell us about the crisis of legitimacy in American politics? And we will have cocktail chatter. And before we go any further, a reminder that on December 12th in New York University's Skirball Center in Manhattan, we are going to do our annual conundrum show. This is the time when we gather to face such important questions as, would you rather be a fish or a tree? You can still get tickets at slate.com slash live. Please join us at the Skirball Center on December 12th for our conundrum show. It's going to be really fun. Slate.com slash live for tickets. The apparent torture and murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi by a team of Saudi hitmen inside the Saudi embassy in Istanbul has turned into an international crisis. Information seemingly leaked by the Turkish government, which has its own reasons for doing this, indicates that Khashoggi was murdered and dismembered when he went to the embassy to pick up some documents he needed for his wedding. Other reporting suggests the murderers were extremely close to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The Crown Prince is, of course, the increasingly autocratic ruler. He's the, the ruler, in fact, if not in name, of Saudi Arabia. The young prince who's quite good friends with Jared Kushner. The Trump administration, which has been hand in pocket with MBS, as he is known, has contorted itself not to blame the Saudis for anything yet. They have accepted Saudi denials more or less at face value, uh, dispatching Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, to Saudi Arabia and then to Turkey to like, weigh the evidence and at least uh, you know just sort of make a make a face showing of of being interested in this. And the president has indicated explicitly that he does not want to disrupt the U.S. Saudi relationship for this. So, John, in some sense, the 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 attempt to keep business as usual with the Saudis is not that surprising. We haven't disrupted business as usual when the Saudis are murdering thousands of Yemenis, when they broke off relations with Canada over a, a Canadian foreign minister making a mild comment about their human rights, when they kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister, and so on and so on. Why is the U.S. government, and in particular the Trump administration, even more than U.S. governments in the past, so willing and eager to work with the Saudi government and to to turn a blind eye to their repeated misbehavior. Well, there's a there's a series of different reasons. Um, some with more proof than others, um, and they range everything from uh, military orders the Saudis have booked, which is different than money they've checks they've already written, but things they've said they've wanted to buy, which is where the president uh, gets his 110 billion dollar figure. Experts say that the number's closer to to 20 billion. But they are a big purchaser of, of U.S. Um, uh, arms, and and when, every time you sell them a plane, you're not just selling them the plane, you're selling them the parts and all of that. So that's the argument the president's made. It's about jobs. But the big reason, the geostrategic reason, is that Saudi Arabia is helping um, the United States with its number one priority in the, in the region. And maybe its number one priority, but probably number two to North Korea, is Iran. So Saudi Arabia is is at the center of an Iran-focused U.S. mission in the Middle East. Um, and then the other reason is that the president um, has bragged about having interests in Saudi Arabia in the past. Um, and his son-in-law also has interests, financial interests in Saudi Arabia. And so there's a, a web of interconnectedness at the private level, some of which is opaque. And so that may or may not uh, be involved here. 
you could imagine it not needing to be involved because of the primacy of the the Iranian um, focus of, and that's the focus from people like Bolton and Pompeo, which who don't have you know financial ties to to Saudi Arabia. Emily, what do you think it is about the Khashoggi murder? I'm just going to call it a murder because although we don't know for certain yet, there, there's a huge preponderance of evidence, and rather than have to couch it each time, I'm just going to say, what what is it about the Khashoggi murder that is an inviting international outrage? that all these other incidents, including the the ongoing war crimes in Yemen, did not. Why is it causing people to withdraw from MBS's huge, splashy Davos in the Desert Conference and casting doubt on whether he can even continue to be the crown prince? Right. I mean, if you're talking about loss of life and you're being, you know, completely rational and counting, then the atrocities in Yemen are far worse. And we've ignored them, you know, at our moral peril, peril for a while now. But I think, first of all, Jamal Khashoggi had a lot of friends in Washington. Um, He was someone who was well-liked by people in the press corps. There are a lot of people with personal connections to him who are in a position to make a fuss. And I think the other thing is just the dramatic nature of this crime. I mean, it's been described in these horrifying ways, and it seems as if it was carried out by people who are very close to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is himself very close to Jared Kushner. And so there's just this sense of personal involvement. It makes it feel like a kind of mafia killing or just the head of state eliminating someone whose politics he didn't care for in a kind of breathtakingly blatant way. And I think there's just something about that that um, has distressed people and captured their imaginations. And, you know, sometimes the narrative of one person and how abusive power affects one human being can transcend a bloody conflict like the one in Yemen, in which there are lots of people who are being terribly harmed, but they remain kind of a, a mass of faceless people to us. Whereas, like, here is this one guy, we can see pictures of him, we can read his words, his fiance was waiting for him outside the embassy walls of the consulate walls. I mean, there are just all these reasons to identify with him strongly in this story. You know, it's not, it's, it wouldn't be the first time that the United States made a decision, uh, a moral decision in its strategic interest that was against its human rights rhetoric. Um, I mean, Hardly some, the first right, time, right? right. So, so in a sense, what the president is doing uh, in appearing to slow walk this, we don't know the full story, but um, one thing that is so jarring is that we know what this president looks like when he is on the hunt for suspicious information. He, he does it regularly, but he also rose to power as a political figure by being relentless in his pursuit of the truth about uh, Barack Obama's Kenyan birth. So uh, when it comes to the Kenyan birth, no piece of information is too insignificant. Um, and all information is credible. And then in this case, nothing uh, seems to be credible in terms of the way the president is reacting. The way he's reacting is the way you could argue a president should react, which is with restraint, let the facts get in. There are other equities at play here. He may know stuff that isn't public. But again, relative to his reaction in all these other cases, and it does match a pattern of a seeming disinterest in the in the authoritarian thuggishness of uh, Vladimir Putin, um, Kim Jong-un, uh, Duarte. So, you know, it is it comes within his um, his pattern. Just on the Yemen point, not only is Saudi Arabia um, a, uh, a bombing there, but the UN report of a week ago claimed that Saudi Arabia was responsible for at least 1,200 deaths of children. Um, and in some cases, the munitions they're using in the prosecution of this military action are munitions they bought from the United States. To dig into that point of yours, John, this is the age of impunity. This is the age where if you were Vladimir Putin, you can assassinate people you don't like on British soil using chemical agents. If you are the North Korean leader, you can you can use a nerve agent in the middle of an incredibly busy airport in Malaysia to kill an enemy. If you're China, you can kidnap the head of Interpol and imprison a million Uyghur citizens. And yet, there's no consequence for any of it. I totally understand the, the need for realpolitik in the world, and I, I'm not in any sense an idealist. But it is pretty shocking to see how far the United States has strayed from its avowed support for human rights, for sovereignty. And it's and and not only is it that, that 
Trump says nothing when these things happen. It's that he it couples it with criticism and attacks on the countries which do support democratic mm-hmm. ideals and which are you know which do behave with respect and dignity towards its citizens. Where where our biggest enemies, the countries that are getting the the full rhetorical brunt of the United States, are Canada and Germany. And meanwhile, we have assassinations occurring in embassies and and atrocities occurring all over the world. It's it's very very disheartening. And I don't know. Right. I mean, it doesn't it's, it's, just, it's like it's, it's going to be it's it's a cost that we're going to bear in the future because we it, we have lost. America has not always lived up to its ideals. It has right. often been cynical. It has often overlooked, as as Emily you pointed out, overlooked uh, human rights issues when it when it has needed to, but. We've been, uh, you know, at least a B minus on it. Now we're a D, and that's going right. to be a cost. We we are no longer a moral beacon in the world, or we increasingly seem to not want to be a moral beacon, and that's a big problem. Usually, there's a bal- a counterbalance. So the U.S. may not act perfectly in all cases, but there are cases in which there's real effort to try to live up to and spread the ideas of human rights. And in this case, there's the balance seems out of whack. I mean, the other thing that is. I think this is an occasion to think about is whether our priorities, our focus on Iran is the correct one and whether that is part of why we're being led astray. I mean, we think of Saudi Arabia, we want to think of it as a partner in fighting terrorism, but some of the Saudis' own tactics breed terrorism. And, you know, it is an autocratic, monarchical, unaccountable regime that we have um, more or less supported for many years because of our own tactical decisions. And, you know, President Obama expressed some reservations about that and some um, desire to distance ourselves and ourselves and hold the Saudis at arm's length. And I think what we've seen with Trump and particularly with Kushner are these very close relationships, which, as John mentioned earlier, may or may not be tied to their own financial interests. And, you know, you see Kushner making a bet on um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, that seems like a terrible bet to make in terms of human rights and that we're that he is emboldening someone who is not going to be a good leader for his country, either domestically or internationally. So if we're also just thinking here about judgment and about, you know, all the responsibility and praise that Trump lavished on Kushner, especially early on in the administration, you really have to wonder here, especially because of the reports that U.S. intelligence picked up that the Saudis were planning to detain Jamal Khashoggi before he showed up at that consulate. And we don't seem to have warned him or done anything about well, that. I, I mean, I think the MBS question is actually really complicated. The thing he is the alternative to is also terrible. The thing that he is the alternative to was a was a monarchic system that was heavily corrupt, also supporting very theologically conservative and, and in fact, radical and Islamist theology all across the world and spreading it, a country that was, if anything, less democratic than what he wants to make it, more, in many ways, more repressive than what he wants to make it, less open to the world than what he wants to make it. And yet he, and yet he himself is now proving to be an autocratic dictator, a thug, a, a villain, a murderer of the worst sort. And so it, it's not, I mean, what's weird is that it's not that MBS is somehow, that Saudi Arabia has taken some really dark turn to a much darker place. It's just taken a dark turn to a different dark place. It was in a dark place. Yeah, and but if you have no good alternatives, then don't make a big bet. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. yeah, then, like, yeah. No, I'm, you, you know me. Again. I'm like, uh, I'm all Iran. I'm like, Iranians are just Texans. They're just Texans <laughs> with uh, dark hair. Uh, it's imp- it is important to remember that, that Saudi Arabia was the location of the president's first foreign trip. It was the, all the chips were moved into this. Uh, and that, and that, that wasn't just because that happened to work for the itinerary. It was a it was a chosen in specific for a specific reason with for a reorientation of U.S. policy and a big bet on uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and it, and and our relationship with Saudi Arabia is is essentially built on two pillars. It's certainly not built on any shared set of set of values or shared set of principles of how a country should be governed or people should be treated. It's built on oil and arms sales, which are two things which. I certainly would like to reduce in the world. The the spread of lots of U.S. arms to Saudi Arabia, to me, multiplies the danger in the Middle East and creates more likely that there are more things like Yemen and more likely that there's a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia or between their proxies. 
and I don't want the, to, to live in a world where all we where we're fully dependent on Saudi oil being pumped and keeping Saudi oil prices low. That seems like a terrible world. We want less dependency on that and less use of it. So I'm all for a turn away, but I don't. I'm not sure that there's any grand uh, coalition to turn away from Saudi Arabia these days anymore. But there's not a grand coalition to support Saudi Arabia in the Senate. Um, as Marco Rubio said, there is no Saudi Arabia caucus. Um, and so uh, um, it'll be interesting to see the pressure, if there is any pressure, or what the, how the president diverges from, from, his, uh, from, from Republicans in Congress. One thing I've been wondering about is tone. I'm not sure that's the right word for it. But, you know, there's this real politique, like, we don't want the Saudis to stop pumping oil because that could really, you know, throw a huge wrench into the world economy. Gas prices could soar, like, can't have that. And we don't want to stop the arms sales because we like that money. And then there's, you know, Mike Pompeo showing up and being all jovial and laughing at this moment of great seriousness, making it seem like, this is just acceptable behavior that the U.S. is ready to just completely um, brush by. And I had the same feeling when I was listening to Trump say, almost in one breath, I'm not giving cover to anything. Saudi Arabia is, this arms deal is really great for us and we do lots of business for them. So he was giving cover in this moment where he claimed not to be. It was incredibly clear. And I mean, if you're like a real critic of U.S. foreign policy and you think the U.S. is always a cynical actor, then you might be like, okay, well, now it's all out in the open. You know, good. We have a Washington Post lead today, uh, Thursday, which says that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are searching for a mutually agreeable explanation for Khashoggi's disappearance. Like, let's just show the complicity and have it all out there. But I do think that it matters a great deal whether the United States is explicitly condoning and looking past this kind of murder. It's scary to have us just off the moral compass entirely. Even though I see the hypocrisy in the past, I'd still think I'd rather have some sense of limits, even if it's, um, you know, incomplete and flawed and et cetera. Well, the hypocrisy did some did some work in the past, which is that it um, set some limits. It set some limits. It kept some countries from misbehaving. And ultimately, you know, the idea that you're fighting for truth and honesty in the American way ends up being the thing that marshals, you know, American men and women who go fight in the service of their country right. is that, um, you know, that we're the good guys and we stand up for the right things. I mean, that's the... I'm not saying in this specific case, but it is, it's all on that same continuum. Right, the push and pull. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing I keep thinking about is that I feel like the bill for the Trump era is going to come due dramatically later, but we kind of see these foreshadowings of it, and this is one of them. And none of the foreshadowings seem to be big enough on their own to change the political dynamic inside the United States sufficiently. But you can imagine how in the future we're going to look back and be able to, like, trace the breadcrumbs to a different kind of world order and a weaker democracy. That certainly was true with the deficit this week. Mm, Yes. Well, it's a good thing to bring in right now. Exactly. Speaking of bills coming due. Just one final point on that, actually, which is that I think it's important to recognize there is no Saudi caucus, as you say, in the U.S. Senate, John. There is a huge Saudi caucus for Saudi money for investment. Right. And every right. company in Silicon Valley, every company that that wants capital is is trying to get a cut of of Saudi money. I mean, I, I go out and pitch my company and talk to venture VC funds and and private equity people and a lot of them have Saudi money in their funds and spend a lot of time going to going to Saudi Arabia and meeting with the various power brokers there. And so so while it is it's it's the case that those folks, you know, they they don't want to be associated with with murderers and they don't they don't want to be associated with a with a thuggish regime, the pull of all that money is very very powerful and and yeah, we saw people withdraw from this conference, which I suspect actually is the biggest threat that that MBS feels right now is that this conference is going to be a fiasco. But they'll come back. If the money is there, they're going to come back. Because that money is it's extremely green, and there are huge, huge piles of it. Slate Plus members, you know you get a bonus segment on the Gab Fest 
and on other Slate podcasts. Today's bonus Slate Plus segment, we're going to figure out what animal should represent each of our political parties, that the, the donkey and elephant seem tired. They seem super tired. And one of our listeners suggested we find new elephant, new animals for them. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member to get a chance to listen to bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Senator Elizabeth Warren announced the results of a DNA test this week. Senator Warren, who, like, like so many of us who are good students, I think is always expecting all test results to be good test results, was very happy to announce the results of this test and probably thought it would prove triumphant. Instead, it's been a resulted in a huge backlash. Warren was, of course, attempting to prove that she did have Native American ancestry and thus that Trump's slur of her, his constant calling her Pocahontas, was even more baseless than it seemed. She instead scored what we call an own goal in soccer and in politics. She made herself look foolish. She reduced herself to Trump's level and lost. And she irritated, really, really irritated people who ought to support her. So, um, especially Emily, you, the Cherokee Nation, should we just say, and other Native American groups? Yes. And so, Emily, can you just t- sort of give us the background about why Warren's ancestry became an issue to begin with? Because I think it, it, some of it locates itself in Ivy League law schools, a place that you, places that you know well. <laughs> Embarrassingly so. So, I mean, Elizabeth Warren did not get her job at Harvard because she claimed to be Native American. She, as far as we can tell, has, you know, explicitly gotten no employment benefit from it. And she made that really clear in this five-minute video that she released. However, Harvard did claim her at one point as, like, the first minority woman to get tenure. She checked a box on a form for the, it's called the AALS, the American Association of Law Schools. Anyway, like a law professor directory, basically. So she sort of laid claim in a small but significant way to having this heritage. Now, you know, she says this is based on family lore and that she was, like, expressing pride in this part of her heritage, Okay, except that, you know, making anything that seems to be a sort of self-interested claim of having Native American heritage is like a questionable thing to do, especially because tribal, formal tribal identity is a, you know, really important matter for tribes, how you establish that you're a member of a tribe. They care a lot about it and they have their own rules and ways of proceeding that are not based on DNA. They're based on belonging and family ties and, you know, directly being impacted by being part of the tribe. So I feel like Warren throughout this has been insufficiently sensitive, to put it nicely, to those interests. And so, okay, so she takes this DNA test and in the sort of basic straightforward way, she can, I guess she did it to say to Trump, like, Look, you said you'd pay me a million dollars if I could prove that I had Indian heritage. Look, I just proved it. Now be quiet. But it just to do that without talking to the Cherokee Nation and figuring out how they were going to feel about what was essentially a political stunt. I just don't understand that at all. Like, I don't understand it on a human level. It seems 
mean? And on a political level, it seems like own goal is like a nice way to put it. I just don't get it. And, you know, you can say like, given all of the things, all the, if, if you're a liberal, like Elizabeth Warren has lots to recommend her policy wise and character wise, but this is some kind of blind spot that is troubling. I don't know how else to think about it. Having read all the responses from the Native Americans who just seem like this, I mean, especially given our history of how we have treated and decimated Native American tribes, to be an American politician that doesn't seem to really care about how they're going to react to your self-interested claims about your heritage. Like, I just don't get that. Here's what seems striking to me. Democrats are 20 days away or a little less than 20 days away from a huge big midterm where everybody is, it's a nationalized election. Everybody wants to keep the eye on the ball. Why would you do this three weeks out when your party is, you know, needs to stay focused on and what they And never do? benefits from culture wars. Never. Well, well precisely right. And, and that's, that's, you've, that's my next territory here, which is, it, it seems to me that, that when you get in one of these stupid political fights, what you want to do is get into a stupid political fight where if people can't follow the details of why you're fighting, they nevertheless have communicated to them your deep interest in a thing that they care a lot about. I don't think there are a lot of people out there who care about this question of of identity or not identity. Now, you could say, well, what they care about is they want to see a fighter for um, the Democratic cause against this president who is, uh, you know, fights in a different way. Okay. But if that's the case, this is not a, a, a victory in the Wiley primary, right? The Wiley primary is who is more Wiley than um, Donald Trump and who's, you know, Michael Avenatti is, is, is uh, participating in that. I don't think he's winning that either, I understand. but he's trying. He's <laughs> trying to participate in the Wiley primary. Everybody on the left is going to have to, at one in one way or another, participate in the Wiley primary to show that they are more Wiley than Donald Trump against whom they are going to have to go up. And this was a bid in that. In a, and I don't think um, it lost. Yeah, yeah, and it lost at a bad time, at a time where Democrats. It seems to me, if I were a Democrat, I would want to see somebody fighting on my issues in this. And 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 to be really fair to her, this is what Elizabeth Warren. When people used to watch her YouTube videos, that's what they used to watch: is her fighting on you know kind of traditional Democratic issues in a way Democrats like to see their candidates fight. And so she's replaced her herself as that with herself as this for the moment for you this 10 second news cycle what's so f- freaking frustrating about this is not only does this not rebut trump it basically confirms the attack it, his no, attack which was that's fair oh no I don't he, think his attack fair. which was a racist and gross attack but the uh, the subtext of that attack was it wasn't really about did she have native ancestry or not. It's was she taking was she virtue signaling? Is she taking advantage of it in in the game in her elite snooty Ivy League university and getting gross privilege out of it? It, it, it I don't think she did that as a university professor, but she's certainly trying to do that now. She's trying to virtue signal now. She's trying to indicate some connection which she hasn't earned. She's a white woman who you know has you know some as we all do somewhere in her past something happened. Wait, I. Th- you're being a little unfair here. What's that? Like, well, I th- she does. I mean, I don't. I I don't. I'm so disinterested in all of this DNA stuff. Like, I, I this has convinced me that I am the yeah. last person who's going to go on. But she chose to be interested the in last. It. But I will just to stick up for her on the fact checking front. And now I'm relying on Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post. She does have more Native American suggestive DNA than the rest of us. Like, and she does have this family story of you know some sort of tinge of racism and prejudice of her father's family toward her mother's family, right? But I hope Emily, I got that like, right. Emily, like, anyway. that's feeble. Also, she, you don't no, know no, that she has just, more than the rest of us. To... You don't have a DNA test, as far as I know. But, I don't have a DNA uh, test. For all I know, I'm, you know, there's... Oh, there, come on. Who, there's Your family any, wasn't I, who, there here. It wasn't in the United who, States who, in the who, Emily, century. who knows? You get the test. Who knows? And it's, it is also clear that there's nothing in her life, nothing meaningful in her life suggests that her native ancestry, insofar as she has it, has been a like a significant fact in her life at all. She's not someone who's a, who's spent time uh, on reservations. She's not someone who is you know has deeply studied native law. She's not someone who's worked in native law. I don't think. And so to to associate herself with it at all is just lame. And it smacks of the kind of the kind of PC 
showmanship that gets so many people riled up. And it just it, – she should never have talked about it. She should have – Ross Douth that wrote the column about this. She should have just, you know, said, you know, that was a, I that was wrong to, to have uh, like talked about that and never talked about it again. Never had a DNA test. Never talked about the DNA test if she did have it. It's just everything she did on this was wrongheaded, and and the I can't st- that the the mistake of it is so profound. It's really frustrating. I don't agree with the never talking about it. I mean, I totally agree with like not checking off the box, not doing the DNA test. So I'm, I guess I'm like 80% with you, but the idea that like you have a fam, a story about your family that, you know, captures your imagination in some way, that doesn't offend me. What offends me is overclaiming for it and not like aligning your claims with the people whose lives are really affected, i.e. people in the Cherokee nation or other tribes. It also, it's, it, yeah. It just seems also if you're going to do combat with um, the president on values and identity stuff. Win. E- e- well, A, win. And also there's other ter- there's other territory which doesn't have anything to do with you personally about where you might get. Um, I-, I don't know. It's not a great it's not a great fight for. Uh, Pick your turf probably. better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I agree I, with all of that. Can I say one thing, though, that I like reading for today reminded me of? using Pocahontas as an insult is horrible. Like, can we just just check that off? Like, it is... Pocahontas is based on a real teenager who was effectively kidnapped and who died when she was 21. I think in Britain, she was, like, spirited there. I just... It's... I didn't totally understand how disgusting it is to go around making that into a joke. It's really gross. And that is on on Trump, not on Elizabeth Warren. Do you guys... Thanks. We should note, by the way, this is the week of horse face, too. Yes, which is yes. yucky, though different. Oh, well, I oh think but I guess can, we, we can actually, posit that Trump's that whatever Trump says is is you know Trump's original assault is fifty times worse than than Warren's feeble uh, parry. It's just she just didn't need to do it. Do, do you guys think to change the subject a lot that DNA tests are good for the world? Do you think this information reveals? Anything that really helps us have understanding and connection? Or is it m- more principally a source for alienation and a, a misreliance on blood over over the actual thing that shapes you, which is the the culture, the family you grew up in, the place you grew up in, the friends you grew up around? That's such a good question. That's a really great question. I mean, I, I struggle with this because I— I generally feel like it's important to be pro-fact and pro-information, and DNA is just a piece of information. So why should I be going around telling people not to find that out about themselves? I do think that we don't really understand what it means. Um, You know, there was huge confusion in the reporting of Elizabeth Warren's DNA results, and I think we over-interpret our genetic makeup. Yeah, I mean, this did make me... think about how totally incurious I am about this. And and so I hadn't really thought, like, I thought I was just being lazy, but it's not just laziness. Like, I just don't care about this at all. I don't think, and maybe it's because I have an incredibly boring, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish genetic makeup as far as I know. So I don't think there's really anything to discover. Right, or do you? Or do I? But I have had friends who've gotten quite unsettling recent information from 23andMe tests. In terms of their health and antrobiotics? Like a parent who is not your parent because oh, it turns out like something else was going well, on that's, there. Well, that's, yeah, that's, you don't want that. No, you don't want that. I, well, I don't know. Maybe you do want that. I mean, it, I'm not sure whether that's good or bad, um, but it it has not made me, I mean, I anyway, I just think the whole thing gets over, we get over invested in it and think about it too much. I'd like to yeah. know as a kind of uh, ancestry where your, you know, where your people came from part. Because I have this myth that that I tell myself and that my, particularly my mother's side is invested in. I mean, it's it's not a myth; it's true. But the <laughs> like, I mean, we I am probably a quarter Irish, but um, behave like I'm eighty five percent Irish, and so I'd like to actually know where the rest of me comes from. Because everything on my dad's side is probably all made up. Because I, th- I guess I'm with you. I I'm interested in the geographical aspects of it. I think I'm I am curious. But I'm totally uncurious about the kind of notion of fam- of that that I'm discovering family or that I'm somehow discovering character by discovering some family secret. You know, your family is the are the people who raise you and 
spend time with you. Like that's who your family is. There's no ambiguity. Somebody who's a who gave a, a you know who impregnated someone three generations ago, or someone who you know donated sperm is not a father. He's not a parent. That's not nothing to do with it. And and there's this. I, I spent all this time doing my sperm donor book and sperm donor oh, research, right. and and I really became. I really got unhappy watching children look for their father. They were looking for their father. And I always thought, like, that's these people are not your father. They're, mm. They supplied some genetic material, which has helped shape you. And, you know, that I'm not saying that the genes certainly have an effect on you. But, what, you know, the only thing, the, the only person who can be a father is someone who is, who is present and, and acting in your life. That genetic effect, is it's, it's not that it's not real. It's hugely real. But it's not that person is not does not matter. So right, I, and I, then the the further you go back in your genetic makeup, then you wind up like you know. What if I wasn't a hundred percent Ashkenazi Jewish and I had some other like DNA that I I'd still be my white Jewish self because you know as you were saying before about Elizabeth Warren, I've never like been impacted by being part something else. It would be like ridiculous to go around suddenly claiming that that was had some significance in my life. Whereas people who look white but have, you know, a close relative who is black or Hispanic or something else, like that's a different experience of the world, right? I mean, that's where I feel like you have to be sensitive and specific in how you let people define themselves. By the way, I, I'll make a bet if you end up 23 and me and yourself that you are not 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. Fine. Good. That would be more interesting. I would be totally happy about that. But I don't, again, I don't think it would, given that that's my own sense of my heritage and it's the only thing I've got going culturally, I feel like it would be silly to then suddenly be like, oh, I'm, right. I don't know. Yes. What know. I'm, I'm an Italian. I'm an Italian Irish. countess. <laughs> I don't think I I'm actually, Irish. I came over here because of the t- potato fam- famine in Ireland, just <laughs> like John's family. <laughs> There was a brilliant essay by Ezra Klein and Box, The Rigging of American Politics, um, that came out this week. It's very short, but I thought astonishing piece that pulled together a lot of the troubling themes in American political life. Um, the Senate underrepresenting the most populous states, the sham of the Electoral College, presidents losing the popular vote, the rigging of congressional districts, both by gerrymandering and sort of locking in of incumbents the manipulation of campaign finance laws in a way that particularly helps one party, the use of unheard of tactics to lock in an ideological majority in the Supreme Court, the basic unfairness of a system that requires Democrats to win the national vote by eight points just to play evenly, the unfixability of the Constitution, the disenfranchisement of citizens in D.C. and Puerto Rico, the concerted GOP campaign over the past decade or two to reduce voting by people who are more likely to vote for Democrats using tactics that are racist sometimes and slimy most of the time. And what Ezra concludes from this is that we've created a politics where the left no longer increasingly doesn't believe in the legitimacy of the American political system. The right, by contrast, will believe that any effort to change those rules to balance it in the way that liberals or the left would like to balance it that any effort like that would it's, would also be illegitimate and that therefore we're in a standoff. We're in a, in a standoff with, with a conservative minority putting a, a chokehold on a lot of political power with no clear way to fix it to allow populist power or to allow Democrats to alter that. Go ahead. It's, majority, it's majority power in his argument. It's not just populist or Democrat. It's just majority Yes. Yeah. So, to use one case study, so that that's not really what the topic of this this uh, this segment is. But that was the, <laughs> this the segment background. is about flowers. <laughs> <laughs> the the focus of this is on one case where some piece of this is in action, which is in Georgia, where uh, the Secretary of State Republican Brian Kemp is in charge of elections and the fairness of elections. He is also the Republican candidate for governor, and he stayed on the job as Secretary of State, even as he has run for uh, governor, which is something that predecessors who have also run for governor have not done. They've stepped down from the job. And he appears to be engaged in a campaign to 
disenfranchised voters who are more likely to be Democratic and more likely to be African-American. So, Emily, what's the what's what is it said that Kemp is doing? What is it said that is going on in Georgia? So Kemp is, what's the word, suspending, I suppose, the registration of 53,000 people who tried to register to vote in Georgia because of what's called the exact match rule. And this is a policy Georgia has been, and Kemp, have been trying to put into place for years, have previously, um, in, in, in previous iterations, they were blocked by the Department of Justice from doing this. Now we don't have DOJ playing that role anymore. Um, And the exact match program means that if there's any tiny error in spelling, a missing hyphen, you use like, you know, Dave instead of David as the first name, you don't get to be um, officially registered. And that can happen if the county official who's entering the data makes the error. So a small error means that your registration gets kind of held in some netherworld. Now, I want to say really quickly that this does not mean you can't vote. You can still vote. And if you bring ID and the election officials recognize your ID, you can even vote regularly, not conditionally. So all these folks who've gotten these letters from the Georgia Secretary of State can still show up at the polls. But it's to send them a confusing letter suggesting that there's a problem with their registration is to suppress their vote. And the few states that use this exact match system are places like Kansas, where Chris Kobach, who's like, you know, even higher on the pantheon than Brian Kemp of um, trying to, I would say, limit access to the ballot. That's like this is his kind of tactic. Florida did this at one point. Um it under um, another Republican administration that was um, making other active efforts to throw people off the rolls. You know, look, always with these questions, it's a balance. Do we want people to be fraudulently signing up to vote? No, we don't. Do we have evidence that that's really a problem of any magnitude? No, we do not have that evidence. We have lots of evidence of people being blocked from voting or what I would call sort of a soft block like a this. brownout or something, not a blackout. But yeah, exactly. Um, And it just so happens that 70% of the people who got these letters are African-American, even though I think it's something like 32% of registered voters in Georgia are African-American. So we see, you know, racially disparate outcomes here. And then we see Brian Kemp saying, like, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm just doing my job. This is, you know, has no racial implications. And that is just hard to swallow on its face. Stacey Abrams, who's the Democratic candidate from Georgia, um, and I should say, disclosure, a former law school classmate of mine, of whom I am fond, you know, she has been waging this battle in Georgia for years to try to increase voter registration. And Kemp has been her foe in that. And so what we're seeing are national headlines about a long-running battle, which as you started out framing, David, you know, Ezra Klein's piece does a really good job of sort of pulling back and showing how this is like one piece in this mosaic we're seeing right now that runs counter to majority majority rule in the country. Yeah, John. although it seems it seems like the one piece of his argument that is possibly seems more fixable. Um, but maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, deluded. But um, because some because his bigger argument that's what's interesting about it is his argument is this structural flaw exists so it's not that the things you don't like about american this is his argument whether you agree with it or not it's not that like the things you don't like about america are the result of the behaviors of the various people it's beyond that it's that the structure itself is broken and obviously part of his argument too is that people are exploiting the brokenness uh, but anyway uh david one quick point before you ask me the question what fascinates me here about this and to the extent that it becomes a national story is that the political science uh, research has suggested for some time that people get quite motivated when they think their vote is being taken away from them. In this election, one of the questions was going to be whether minority voters were going to turn out for Democrats across the country in the numbers the Democrats would like them to turn out. Georgia may be a special case because of Stacey Abrams, but whether this becomes a turnout mechanism more broadly um, because African-Americans obviously being denied the vote is pretty much central to the African-American story in, in American history. But that was kind of the question I was actually going to ask you, John, which is that there is this notion, as you say, in political science literature, that pol- that attention to voter suppression tactics increases the turnout of people who feel threatened. And I, I think there, there's clearly some evidence of that. But it's 
I also feel like the voter suppression tactics have gotten pretty good. And it is true that people give up when it's inconvenient to vote. They go to the wrong polling place and they can't, don't have time to get to the right one. They, the line is too long because the machines aren't very good or there aren't enough people or the, they, they've closed a bunch of polling places and consolidated them. And so the line is too long and you can't be late for work or they, you know, election, there's not enough early voting. And so the only day you can vote is on election day, but you, you've got to work on election day or you've got to get home. The, the line is long at the end of the day and you've got to get home yeah. to take care of your kid. And there's right. so many inconveniences that pile up that even that motivation that happens, which I do think we, we clearly see, and you clearly saw when people are motivated to vote, they will stand in longer lines and they will endure more. But it, the, 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 the tactics to discourage people from voting are pretty uh, excellent as well. And I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not sure that, that the motivation side is winning over the inconvenient side right now. Well, one of the interesting things to watch and test is whether whether you call it voter suppression or an attempt to just kind of, there are two things. There's one, which is really trying to do something that's borderline illegal. The other is to, to spend money and particularly on social media to just kind of depress turnout by just bumming out different groups and keep, um, which, which is, which may be underhanded, but is within the boundaries. I mean, it's within, you know, um, yes, trying yes. to press the turnout of the other side. That was something that the, the Trump campaign was was successful in doing in in the presidential election. And what surprised me is that as a tactical matter, the Democrats haven't kind of tried to bolt all this together. And which is what goes to your point, David, which makes this more of a sustainable argument. Which is, in other words, usually voter suppression has been useful because it's happened kind of quietly, as you say. The efforts are are good. They're hard to sometimes identify. They happen quickly and. But in this case, you could imagine a, a situation in which somebody takes the voter suppression efforts or even the hint of them and ties them to a larger discontent among people of color with the entire Trump presidency, which would seem to me to keep it in the news um, or give it more energy than than um, than simply the narrow issue of is your vote being uh, denied you. That's a really good point, especially because um – while some of those disinformation tactics are within the bounds of the First Amendment, if they're paid for by foreigners, i.e. Russians, they're no longer <laughs> fair, they're no longer fair, legal. Fair and and yeah. the idea of, you know, foreign influence in our elections, that is both illegal and not something that most Americans want to think is the reason that our elections go the way they do. Do, do you guys think, Emily, to, to you, the the shape of Ezra's argument about the rigging of American politics was very familiar, but it does seem much more like a national political issue than a local political issue that at the local and state level, not that there's not manipulation we see in states like Wisconsin and North Carolina that that strong Republican majorities have attempted to change the rules to institutionalize Republican power or dis disenfranchise places where where Democrats traditionally have had influence. So, so it's not it's not completely um, a fair playing field at the state level, but that state level politics is is much less subject to this, and therefore maybe that's a that's an area where where Democrats should focus their efforts rather than trying to the the national pol national political wins are so much harder as we see with the Senate uh, this year and even with the House this year, and therefore a lot of state level focus where politics is more responsive and and more fair might be a better place to emphasize. So that's such an interesting argument, right? Because traditionally it's Republicans and conservatives who have invested a lot of energy in state offices and in thinking about federalism and the power of the states. And, you know, liberals and Democrats have um, had more faith in the national government. So here's one downside of what you just suggested. The federal government has enormous resources and power, ever more so. It becomes hard to ignore if you want to have policies that affect lots of Americans' lives. It, you know, it is like the elephant in the room. But of course, you're right that some states are easier for Democrats to take control of. I guess what I wonder about when we start going down this road is whether we're talking about a more and more divided country in which where you live determines a lot of things about the shape of your life. Now, maybe that's okay because, like, people can move and that's how it goes. But there is something unsettling about it when we think of, you know, the national social compact about having places that, you know, really differ from each other in terms of 
deep policy matters. I guess the other thing I want to say about um, these questions about the democratic process we're talking about is that Democrats, when they have been in power, have thus far, in a lot of places, and certainly on the national level, not seen this as an urgent question. So there are ways to start shifting this power balance, right? Like national automatic voter registration could change the picture. David Leanhardt of The Times was talking this week about adding senators from D.C. and Puerto Rico because he did a piece showing how, you know, white people benefit from what he called affirmative action based simply on the composition of the Senate. There are ways to re-tilt the playing field, and thus far, those kind of structural fixes have not been particularly high on the Democratic Party's agenda, and I wonder if we're going to start to see that change. The problem with making structural fixes is that we, um, and I was going back and and spending some time with, um, with President Madison, and when you listen to the debates they had, first of all, the Continental Congress being um, totally in secret so that they could think and talk and have a debate without it leaking, it seems awfully quaint, but also quite useful. But also the the fact that everybody has an argument and a discussion, and then because they believe in the structure of the debate that they're having, they all kind of agree to the outcome, even if they didn't agree with what the actual outcome is. They believe that the structure and the process created a good outcome. The problem with all of these reforms, um, which are very appealing on some certain level, or at least appealing to discuss because whether you agree with the solution or not, you you enjoy and learning about the various component parts of the discussion, is that we can't even have proper arguments anymore um, at a public level with good faith uh, on, on both sides. So the structural flaws make it hard to fix the structure. We will leave the rigged American political system behind us and we will go get a drink we will go have a very strong cocktail at a local watering hole and john when you're having your very strong cocktail what are you going to be chattering about well you might have uh had a tough week and that's why uh, in addition to turning to non-alcoholic methods of um alleviating your stress you might also turn to a cocktail but nick haig had a uh a tough week uh, this past week. He found himself on the way to work uh, and then was suddenly hurtling towards uh, planet Earth at the speed of sound, um, feeling six times the force of gravity because he was the American astronaut on the pointy end of that rocket that the Soyuz Russian space uh, capsule that um, exploded on launch. Um, but he and um, his um, Russian colleague in the um, Alexei uh, Ovchinin made it down to Earth, which is amazing. Um, And why did they do this? Because they prepared for two years for basically every kind of thing that could go wrong. So when they were spinning in the huge Vitamix, um, you know, heading and hurtling towards Earth, they were able to complete their little checklist of things. Are the valves working? Is our orientation right? How's the rescue crew doing? But they did it in Russian because we don't, we just, Americans just hitch rides on the Soyuz now because we don't send rockets into space to the space station that way so he had to do it all in russian and then uh when he landed safely thank goodness he uh basically in in um, interviews he did this week he said well you know sometimes things happen and you don't get a vote so this time we just roll with the punches because he's not going to it's not like there's another one leaving tomorrow you know he's now going to have to wait so it just reminded me another way in which space exploration we know about it in all of its glory and what it discovers and the kind of romantic things that we discover but sometimes even in failure you see something incredibly admirable which in this case was his equanimity and his the incredible preparation and kind of grace under pressure that happened um, in this. And I should also note as a historic matter, there was a time when the Russians and the Americans used to um, measure their rocket programs as a proxy for how quickly they could destroy the other with their nuclear rockets. So the fact that when they landed, he, you know, reached over to his Russian pal sitting next to him and shook his hand, and then they joked about how fast their flight was, seems to me to some be some sort of hope in the... the um, turning of history that, you know, it's about 50 years after we were on the brink of going to war with the Russians, and now we're through the space race, and now we're cooperating with them. Uh, that is, I had not heard about that. I just read the story as as you uh, were talking about it. Wow. Instead of listening to John, you went and read the yeah. story. He was telling you the story, David. I did both. I did both. <laughs> Emily, what is your 
160 proof chatter. I'm going to sneak in a double chatter today. Um, I want to recommend this beautiful piece in the New York Times Magazine this week by a dear friend of mine, Dwayne Betts. It's called Getting Out, and it's about Dwayne's odyssey from um, being convicted of carjacking in Virginia when he was 16 to graduating from law school and being admitted to the bar in Connecticut, which was um, not a not a done deal. The Connecticut bar um, seemed to be uncertain about whether to admit him and Dwayne persevered and just writes about his experiences with tremendous perspective and heart. It will make you think and um, and make you feel a lot of emotions, this piece, I think. So it's called Getting Out. And Dwayne worked with my beloved um, editor, Elena Silverman. It's just a great piece. So go read it. And then I also wanted to chatter about a remarkable editorial in the Houston Chronicle, calling for what they call a judicial sweep in the misdemeanor courts. So the editorial board is recommending that voters toss out every judge in the misdemeanor courts in Harris County, that's Houston and its suburbs, who has opposed bail reform. There's been this fight now for more than a year over implementing an order from a federal judge that was calling for ending just terrible system of cash bail and misdemeanor courts where people are having like literally five-second hearings and getting consigned to jail for months before trial um, because they had this very high bail set. So this federal judge, Lee Rosenthal, threw out the system back in May 2017, and there's been a lot of wrangling and over it and resistance from a whole bunch of judges. They've spent millions of dollars in public money fighting this order. You know, in the meantime, bail and pretrial release can continue to be kind of mixed up and problematic in Harris County. And so the Houston Chronicle is just telling voters to get rid of all of these folks. I think it's like 10 or more judges who they are calling for being thrown out. So it'll be just really interesting to see what happens with this issue on Election Day. My chatter, uh, first a little uh, log rolling self-promotion begging. Uh, Atlas Obscura, my company has so many great jobs available right now. Come and work with me and an amazing set of colleagues in Brooklyn. So we're hiring a designer, a chief commercial officer, a digital advertising sales director, a photo editor, a program manager for our great trips, a newsletter editor. There's a lot of great jobs. If you go to atlasobscura.com slash jobs, it is uh, the place to be. And we have so many fun, interesting people working there and we're up to so many fun, interesting things. So come join me. My chatter is about another Slate podcast, actually. And I know you have heard us talk and probably other people in your world talk about Slow Burn, the podcast that Leon Nafok has done for Slate over the past year or so. The first season was, of course, about Watergate. The second season has been about the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. I just want to urge you to listen to the final episode of Slow Burn, even if you don't listen to the rest of it. It is an absolutely extraordinary episode because it's about the story of Juanita Broderick. And it is has an interview with Juanita Broderick. Juanita Broderick is the woman who described at the time this happened being raped by Bill Clinton in a hotel room in Arkansas when he was a gubernatorial candidate. He was then the attorney general. And uh, her account of that rape is exceptionally persuasive. She told other people about it at the time in ways that bring great credit to her story. It's absolutely persuasive and damning. And what the, so the slow burn episode not only goes into her, her accusation of rape, it also goes into how that hung over the impeachment. It was, it was sort of behind the scenes of impeachment of Bill Clinton during the Lewinsky case where it was a shadow over it, but it wasn't actually part of it. And it couldn't officially become part of the impeachment proceedings, even though it was, I think, by far the most damning charge against him. And I also think it gives us a new way to think about how, why there's such continued rage in conservative media and among conservatives about double standards and and how Clinton, you know, manifested the double standards in the most egregious way, that he was a sex criminal. He was literally a criminal, literally a rapist, if you're to believe Broderick. And there was this evidence of this wrongdoing was essentially quashed by a complicit media, and he was allowed to get away with it and then hide behind sanctimony about, you know, Republican uh, uh, witch hunting. And this doesn't 
in any sense justify anything that Donald Trump or Brett Kavanaugh has done. But it does get to this that we I've always had a hard time getting at why there's so much conservative hatred and disappointment and rage at Bill Clinton. And this, this helps explain it. I, it well, really I helps know. explain it. And it really also and, helps explain it. Like to, I came away from it thinking I never want to hear another fucking word from Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton again. I just don't want to. It's well, just that story. It is a it's an it's a it's an appalling story. It's an, a story well, uh, that he should never have been allowed to 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 be dog catcher in Arkansas, given if that's true. And also just to add the. Um, to your point, it's a, they also hate all the enablers who heard and heard the story over the years and didn't get very curious about it, um, and who are now in the enablers. They would say either in the democratic institutions, democratic politicians, the enabling press, as they see it, who heard those stories and didn't really do anything about it. And now, when they hear stories with you know one tenth of the either credibility or evidence, nevertheless jump all over it because the political polarity has changed. Yeah. Anyway, so so please listen to that episode of slow burn it's the final episode and it's just it, it really is the it's the thing that has made me think most of all the things that have been going on over the last few weeks we also got great listener chatters this week once again you have your cocktail parties must be incredible parties to be at i would love invitations to your cocktail parties so you are tweeting us at at slate gabfest sometime you're posting to our facebook page this week we have nidia vasquez who is one of several listeners who pointed us to the story that Jim Fallows did in the Atlantic, making a case or at least, you know, raising the possibility that Gary Hart's collapse in the in 1987 when when he was photographed with Donna Rice on a on a chartered boat called the Monkey Business, that that may have been a setup orchestrated by by Republican trickster and operative Lee Atwater. And I, I think the the case that is made is circumstantial at best, but it's a really interesting read. Did you guys get a look at that? Mm -hmm. I mean, it essentially says that this friend of Gary Hart's was paid because he needed money by Lee Atwater to basically set up this photograph, set up the night stay by Hart on this boat and then set up the photograph where the famous photograph where um, Donna Rice is on his lap and he's wearing a shirt called, or is it a shirt called Monkey Business or is it yeah, on the boat? The boat's the boat called the Monkey Business. He's wearing a shirt. or The, the, the word Monkey Business is in yeah. the photograph and I can't, I can't remember, but that was the name of the boat. And that, that was a part of what torpedoed his, uh, his presidential career that year. Um, you know what's funny about the heart thing though, going back to your point, David, is if there was, it was seen at the time as an overreach and the, the press as obsession with the sexual peccadilloes of their candidates. That obsession actually, you know, it didn't it didn't obviously stop Bill Clinton from being elected, and it kind of went away. I mean, can you imagine the teams of people that would have been dispatched to cover uh, President Trump's peccadilloes as a candidate were this 1988? I mean, the fever of, of character investigations into the sexual practices seems to have actually been, is lessened today than, and I don't just mean with Donald Trump, there have been other candidates where where the the coverage wasn't, um, you know, the teams of investigators weren't sent out. So it's just an interesting uh, moment in presidential history. I, I don't think there's a consistent point there, though, because John Edwards was totally ruined by that. But not during the campaign. People knew about it during the campaign, didn't report on it. Newt Gingrich, subsequent to the Gary Hart thing, people knew he was having an affair, didn't report on it during impeachment. That's what I mean. In the Hart case, it was, and it was idiosyncratic because Hart was a certain kind of candidate, but it was seen in the wake of Watergate as a character test. We need to test and figure out in campaigns whether the character of our candidates is sufficiently good because, you know, character can lead you to these awful, or character flaws can lead to these awful outcomes, which of which Watergate was an example. Of course, in the Watergate case, the character, Richard Nixon, had a perfectly clean private life. But it was this idea that, that, that investigations into car, character of that kind were a part of the presidential campaign. And I I think at least in the in the and and this was true with investigations into Dole and McCain and others that happened that didn't happen but were in the background of campaigns that never made it to light. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening and come to our Conundrum Show December 12th in New York City. Slate.com/live for tickets. We will talk to you next week.
This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 